Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena. UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever going to get to the bottom of these? My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't. I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason, people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weaponized. Weaponized. Some listeners may find this episode of Weaponized disturbing. What's up, Paul? Hey. <laughs> this is Weaponized. We have a special guest, a longtime friend of ours, Dr. Colin Kelleher, an eminent scientist and investigator. And uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. I thought we would start with maybe a, a general term that gets way overused. It's become sort of a buzzword in scientific circles. Uh, you see physicists using it. You see UFO researchers using it. Uh, all kinds of people who don't seemingly know what it means, don't know what the source of consciousness is. But Colm, you've worked uh, on consciousness-related issues for decades. Give us a sense of, um, does the public understand what it is? Does science understand what it is and how it relates in general terms to the topics that we all discuss privately and, and publicly? Well, obviously, you know, consciousness means uh, different things to different people, as you've just said. But um, from the, the perspective of what's becoming more and more mainstream, I think we've got a new sort of format for discussing consciousness in, even in academic circles. And people like Jeffrey Kripal, people like Professor Donald Hoffman from UC Irvine, Edward Kelly, um, there's quite a few people who are now coming forward and they're discussing consciousness in a completely different way. The paradigm like for 100 years has been that consciousness arises from the brain. And what they're saying is we're turning that completely on its head and we're saying that Consciousness is actually a lot bigger than what's being allegedly made in the brain. So uh, the whole format of consciousness is changing. And as this brings more and more into mainstream, uh, as, a, as a person who's looked at UFOs for many, many years, I see an awful lot of relevance for consciousness and the overlap with UFOs. In fact, I see human consciousness as being a sort of a link, a linchpin for this, the future study of UFOs. I think um, it's all well and good to, you know, do a lot of uh, research on sensor-driven technology with UFOs, but the, the real effects of, of UFOs on humans have to do with effects on consciousness, as well as uh, effects on, on other aspects, physiological effects, psychological effects. So, the idea that consciousness might be prime, quote unquote, is a pretty new concept that has been sort of out on the margins of neuroscience, but it's getting more mainstream now. And um, I believe that the study of UFOs will benefit from this new infusion of, you know, creativity from academia. I love how you just went for the jugular and we are deep in it. I just want to, before we go anywhere, I want to say, 
I am so excited to have you on this show because you guys have been friends for so long. And over those years, you know, for the decade we've been working together, um, I've gotten to know you and we've become friends. But this is a rare opportunity where we can just talk from a very, um, from a just position of, of knowledge of each other for a long time. I'm excited that you're here because you have been central to a lot of what's been going on. A lot of times the public could never know about it. But now they can. And that's why you talking with your buddy Colm, just talking to him so people can hear to see kind of what brought you here, how you got to the point of being, I don't know what a good reference would be, but it's like you have studied things that most of the world has never even considered. But but you didn't start that. I am curious what Colm, Dr. Colm Kelleher's origin story is. Like, where does that, yeah. how does this happen for you? So let's, let's set the stage. He's in Ireland. He's in Dublin. He's taking classes, drinking pints and chasing girls. And right. <laughs> what, what was your degree in Colm? And what was your long-term plan? How did you end up here? So you're making it sound like I had a, a Damascus experience in Dublin, which probably arose through a couple of pints of Guinness. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I was studying biochemistry in uh, University College Dublin, and then I went on and I studied biochemistry in Trinity College Dublin. And um, part of that was part of that latter study was a, a sojourn in France, down in uh, in south of France, where I spent eight months at a laboratory in France and met a Canadian guy, and we collaborated on uh, some experiments, and they worked really well. So we invited me over to Canada. So I, I left Ireland in 1980-something uh, just for a couple of years, and I was intending to go back to Ireland, but, you know, I never left. I never left North America. I mean, here I am almost 35 to 40 years later, and I'm still here. And I, I think I've been sort of um, very, very fortunate in the way things have sort of unfolded um, over the years. Um, I moved from Ottawa in Canada to Toronto, spent a few years in Toronto, spent a few years in Vancouver, came down to Denver, Colorado, all, you know, following work and following different aspects of research. And then I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada to join National Institute for Discovery Science in 1996, uh, spent eight years in Las Vegas, and then I moved to a biotechnology company in San Francisco. And then I got a, a very mysterious call through the grapevine that there was a, a new government-sponsored program in 2008 starting up. So I moved back to Las Vegas, and I've been here ever since. So it's kind of like this long, shaggy dog story. So, yeah, we got to back you up, though. So you are, uh, you, you study, you are a scientist. In what realm were you doing science? Like, who were some of your mentors at the time? Before you answer this strange ad in a newspaper I want to get to, which changes your life forever, from how I understand it, yeah. what kind of science were you doing? Who were your mentors and what inspired you by your mentors? You were a mainstream guy doing mainstream science for yeah. a while and then you went off the rails, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I fell, fell off the cliff. What kind of science and well, who did you work? Uh, I guess um, the main mentor, me, as you speak of mentors, uh, was a guy in uh, the Ontario Cancer Institute in Toronto. I was studying the molecular biology of acute myeloblastic leukemia. In other words, how, how leukemic cells grow and they grow out of control and they kill people. So um, part of my, my study was working with this guy, um, Ernest McCullough, who was actually 
credited with discovering stem cells in mice back in the 60s. Um, so the Ontario Cancer Institute was sort of the place in Canada. Um, it was kind of the flagship uh, place for research in Canada. So I had, I had this guy as a mentor, and one of the things that he always drummed into me was, look, son, if you really want to catch a big fish, go fish in places where there's nobody else fishing. And, you know, I, that whole sort of advice stuck with me because I could see, you know, um, the difference between, you know, science as business as usual versus science in, in a sort of a much more, um, I guess, paradigm-creating way. So um, I, I took his advice to heart. And, um, you know, I was, I was working down in Denver, Colorado, in an immunology research institute, when I saw this, I opened Science Magazine, which is kind of the, the sort of... Uh, Bible. Yes, the Bible of, of science. And, um, you know, you see ads for postdoctoral fellowships and virology and, you know, sort of graduate students and sort of biochemistry. But in the middle of all of these really technical ads, there was a sort of a, almost a full-page ad saying, we are recruiting scientists who are interested in researching the origin and evolution of consciousness in the universe. I mean, can you imagine for a, for a sort of a mainstream biologist, sort of biochemist looking at this? I mean, the kind of, the, the verbiage just blew my mind. And there was a phone number at the bottom uh, of, of the, the page. So I naturally, I was so intrigued, I called it. And, um, you know, I got to talk to, um, Robert Bigelow's assistant, and then I got to talk to Robert Bigelow, and then I found myself out in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, in uh, Robert Bigelow's corporate office, sort of sitting there um, interviewing me, and uh, he hired me a couple of weeks later, and it was like a, a, a total uh, life-changing sort of change in direction, because I moved from mainstream science into what could be called, you know, borderline science or liminal science or, you know, science that was not 100% accepted by the mainstream. So, I mean, it was that ad in Science Magazine that I, I could, I guess, say changed my life. It was the one, in, it was the uninvestigated is, is what it was. And what year, because I want to see where, you, where that possible 1996. Yeah, where our paths crossed. Yeah. Wow. I joined an organization called the National Institute for Discovery Science. And, you know, the name of the National Institute for Discovery Science is, is worth noting because discovery is the sort of essence of the scientific process. And the, the purpose for, for NIDS, as it was called for short, was to actually investigate anomalies. And investigating anomalies was an inherent part of the discovery process in, in sort of opening up new fields for research. So I thought that the nomenclature, you know, naming National Institute for Discovery Science was a very good move on the part of Robert Bigelow. The idea of, of uh, investigating anomalies is central to scientific progress. You know, you can stay in a safe lane and, and spend your whole career living within the paradigm, not risking going outside the boundaries of what's acceptable. But in the history of science, the ones that really make the difference are the ones that pursue anomalies, something that doesn't fit the general accepted knowledge. Absolutely. Right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, and I think when Robert Bigelow founded uh, NIDS, as it, became, as it became known as, 
I think that was a central objective, was to bring in some mainstream, quote-unquote, scientists. Uh, we were shortly joined by a physicist, Eric Davis, uh, who has sort of since, since then become quite well-known in the UFO circles. And we also uh, hired, or, or Robert Bigelow hired, a DVM PhD guy named George Onet, who was an expert at animal pathology. And the purpose for doing that was because this organization was going to investigate scientific anomalies, among which were cattle mutilations. And so the whole idea of hiring a full-time staff member um, of animal pathologist was to actually do that kind of work. And so it was a sort of an overt attempt to get a jump start on a field that was very, very arcane and very sort of mysterious. I mean, thousands of these cattle beginning in the 1960s and going into the 1970s were being found dead on ranchers' properties um, with parts removed, either reproductive organs or lips or eyes or tongues. Um, and it was, a, it was a mystery. Nobody had been caught or charged in decades, which is a very unusual situation because normally if you've got a quote-unquote serial killer, you know, eventually they're caught and charged. But this was decades later during the 90s, and this had been going on for 30 to 40 years without anybody getting charged or, or caught. So NIDS, NIDS, you know, got a DVM, PhD, um, animal pathologist, right from the get-go in order to sort of get a jump start on animal mutilations. We thought we could solve it in probably, you know, um, maybe six months to a year. <laughs> but, you know, uh, we were sort of, uh, I think we were met with an awful lot more uh, complexity. This really, th th this gets to me because it's like, so George has along the way really kind of educated me on all this history and stuff I didn't know about animal mutilations i was interested in nuts and bolts and flying saucers and right. over the over time you know george just kind of showed me here's where the fbi was involved here's in the 70s what happened here are the documented cases the pathology labs and then working with you i kind of started getting a bigger picture but just for our audience or anybody who's unfamiliar with this when we talk about something as mysterious as, as the ufo phenomenon i begrudgingly had to come to an understanding that possibly something like this, what I considered this other mystery, because I wasn't listening to people who were, who were experiencing these things, that, that this other mystery in my mind might have or be correlated to the UFO phenomenon. Right. But when you're studying it with NIDS at the beginning, sci a scientific team, and, and you're, you're you know, on the ground, you're going to these things, you're doing pathologies, you're doing stuff that like other like governments wouldn't do. Right. In your mind, did you make any association immediately that this has something to do with a bigger phenomenon or were you just looking at mutilations and trying to find the killers? I think a bit of both. Um, I, I know the veterinarian that joined National Institute for Discovery Science was very skeptical about any possible linkage between UFOs and cattle mutilations. However, uh, the literature that we looked into suggested that there were a lot of unusual lights in the sky that usually were seen by ranchers or people close to ranchers immediately preceding finding their animal dead in the pasture the following day. So that's the last thing they would report. That's been when, yeah. when George and I have studied specific cases with this mutilation thing under the radar, although filmed. <laughs> uh, what What's interesting is that 
that's the last thing a rancher wants to tell you. Yeah. They'll tell you somebody fucked up my cow and I'd like them arrested. I'd like to find out what's going on. Yeah. But they, they're hesitant to tell you the lights thing or the, the, what, what else they see. Well, I'd add this is, you know, I've reported it a number of times. The number we use is there's been at least 10,000 cases reported. And, uh, you know, it, it's supposedly satanic cults out there carving up cows and other animals, or it's coyotes doing it. Obviously, it is not coyotes or predators doing it. And we'll get into that. But also the cults. I mean, where are all these Beelzebub uh, worshippers running around out in ranches and how are they have never been caught? The actual number is probably many times that because right. ranchers experience this. They don't want to deal with it. They dig a hole, throw the cow in it and and just forget about it. They don't report it to anyone. So the actual problem could be a lot bigger than than what anybody knows. Well, it, it is. You and I all the time get cases associated with this where they're like, we want you want to tell you, we want to show you photos. We don't want it public. We don't want our name. And, you know, one, we, we're able to go investigate. And, but the, the, the whole thing is, is that you're right. This is not something that is just on their priority list to tell everybody. Got a call from a guy in Dumas, Texas, and he has what appears to be uh, an exceptionally interesting cattle mutilation. I'm going to show you the photos from it, see if you think this is a valid case. I'd like to meet with George Knapp because he has walked the walk for decades before me. We're talking about a reporter who has broken global news from the mob to political investigations. He's a touchstone for truth. There aren't many things we can say for sure about this, but there are a couple. One is we know at least 10,000 cases. In all 50 states, they've been reported since the 1970s. I'm going to share something with you that is pretty startling. This is a paper that was written by NIDS, National Institute for Discovery Science. One of the investigations that they carried out was in Montana. There was a, a sheriff. His county is home to Malmstrom Air Force Base, mm -hmm. nuclear missiles. Yeah. And there were a whole outbreak of these UFO sightings over the missile bases. But by the way, just interject, in Dumas, Texas is one of the largest nuclear missile disarmament and maintenance facilities in the world. Pantex. 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 Extraordinary coincidence. Isn't it? Well, it is exactly the pattern that happened in Montana over a series of years. They had something like 200 mutilations in this guy's county. And it was happening in the same time period that UFOs were appearing over these missile silos. Some of those silos were taken down. They were inoperative for a period of time. By what? The story has put out its mystery helicopters. Holy shit. It was reported by the Washington Post and the world ignored it. It's well documented. This is a report by the FBI. In the late 70s, a big outbreak of cattle mutilations. And some U.S. senators said, hey, let's get to the bottom of this. The ranchers are raising hell. And they hired an ex-FBI agent and basically gave him an assignment. Explain this. This that's is the, the actual FBI, FBI from the FBI, right. He took a lot of legitimate evidence and then gave a whitewash explanation that it's predators. It's bullshit. It's not predators. Contrary to the FBI and the government's attempts to wipe this away with that, that report, yeah. the, the mystery continues. If cattle mutilation does happen in waves, we have a reemergence. There have been, you know, really concerted efforts to make the public ignore it and explain it away. The public's not stupid. Witnesses are reaching out to me now. It's fucking amazing. 
when I started doing this, I never wanted to touch the mutilation topic. It's so strange and fringe, people equate them with UFOs and government conspiracies, but I can't ignore the facts. There's physical evidence, and when there's physical evidence, there's something we can learn from that. You see patterns happening here that are intertwined with these cases of true mutilation. When you start out with this investigation, and NIDS is doing it, there's anecdotal accounts of witnesses, ranchers, lawmen who see strange lights in the sky, black right. helicopters, and that sort, in association with you, uh, the cattle mutilations, the animal mutilations, but there isn't really any solid proof. Do you start the investigation looking at the physical evidence, or do you start with the premise that maybe it's involved, or you don't allow yourself to establish it? Well, we, we, we really did not um, begin to correlate any sort of uh, correlations with, uh, with the UFO phenomenon at the very beginning. Our whole uh, idea was to convince uh, law enforcement and ranchers to uh, report these things to us as quickly as possible, because remember, in the summer, if a, if a cow drops dead with wounds to the body, you've essentially got 48 hours max in order to get there, get on the scene, and then uh, take samples. You conduct a full, what's called a necropsy, uh, an animal biopsy or autopsy, and sort of take a whole bunch of, uh, of tissues and then send them to a variety of, of laboratories. But you, the clock is ticking. Once that animal hits the ground, you know, you've got the obliteration of evidence that starts happening, especially in the summer with summer heat. You've got sort of uh, decay happens really quickly. Now, it accelerated even more because the cow has multiple stomachs, which are full of these bacteria that just explode when the animal dies. So you're running against the clock. So the, the idea for NIDS was to contact um, hundreds and hundreds of ranchers, hundreds of law enforcement people around the country, veterinarians, veterinarian associations. So we set up this hotline that we had so that uh, law enforcement people could call, because a lot of the time ranchers would call the law enforcement and say, look, there's obviously some monkey business going on on my property because I've had a couple of animals die and they're not being uh, killed by coyotes. So we, we would get a call from law enforcement and say, you know, in, you know, northern Montana, we've got a, a case of this animal died last night. So we would have this rapid reaction response. We would get up there within sort of 12 hours or less. Um, we'd have the veterinarian with us. The veterinarian would be on the pasture conducting a full necropsy on the animal. He'd be taking uh, all of these tissue samples. Uh, he'd be sampling around where the cuts are be taking blood samples and all of that, and then send them to a variety of, you know, histology labs, biochemical, chemical analysis. So we went the whole Monty on the, on the animal mutilation phenomenon. And, you know, it was a very expensive process. I mean, it was not, luckily Robert Bigelow had a lot of money to put into National Institute for Discovery Science, but doing this for an animal was not, uh, not cheap. Right. And I mean, from a rancher, it made zero economic sense to pour a whole bunch of money into finding out how his animal died. He'd already lost his money once that animal hit the pasture. 
So there was really no point in doing that. But no one had ever done that, this before, certainly not on this scale. Not on this, no, not at the level of, uh, of analytical depth that NIDS went into. And, you know, like I said, we had a full-time veterinarian. Having a full-time veterinarian c capable of conducting full necropsies when the animal is still in that 48-hour period before death was a very unique thing because, I mean, we tried contracting veterinarians later on. And, uh, you know, having a, a veterinarian who's extremely busy, has a high caseload, getting that veterinarian out to a pasture within, you know, 24 hours was a chore. It was, a lot of the time it wasn't possible. So having a full-time veterinarian really helped. Let me ask you this, a burning question. So everybody hearing about this, so... What is the difference? Animals are killed at, by predators all the time. Right. There's signature things. Why, why is this even worth investigation? What are the key hallmarks of a uh, that you saw repeatedly, case by case, repeated that tells you this is something other than normal predatory animals? Give me a laundry list. Tell me what you've seen. Well, the uh, the the first obvious uh, difference is that a predator, when they attack uh, a cow, you know, whether it be coyotes or wolves or, or whatever predator, uh, cats, um, there's a lot of mess, you know, they open up the abdomen, they open up, you know, various parts of the animal, and there's a huge amount of blood on the, on the grass, there's a lot of entrails spread around, I mean, we've seen this, uh, so, so it's, uh, it's pretty obvious. Complete contrast with a with a cattle mutilation is there's usually pretty precise cuts around the anus. For example, would be cored out. You can see the edges of the wounds on the hide, and they're very sharp edges. I mean, it looks like some kind of a scalpel or a surgical instrument has been used. Um, a lot of the time, you see eyes removed. And you see a sort of a, a, a really sharp cut around the eyes. We've even looked at the, the hair on, on the, under a microscope of around the eyes. And you can see how, how crisp the cuts are from around the eyes. Ears are, are a lot of the time lopped off. Sometimes, you know, the ear carries a, a, a plastic ear tag that the rancher uses to identify the animal. A lot of time that plastic ear tag is gone. But the, the clean slice through the ear is very, very different, um, you know, from uh, predators. Now, even, even birds sometimes can, can, can cause sharp cuts, but not the plethora of sharp cuts that are very, very distinctive around the animal. The next really sort of defining characteristic is usually lack of blood. You know, when, when you got cats or coyotes or wolves attacking cows, you know, the mess is unbelievable. Um, in many of these cases that we investigated, there's really no blood um, in the animal or underneath the animal or on the animal. So um, now that's not all cases, but it's some cases. Um, we, had a, we had a case that's been well documented in, uh, on the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, for example, where, you know, an 84 pound calf that had been born the night previously um, was found dead on the pasture. The rancher and his wife had tagged this animal just 45 minutes pr uh, prior. They were still in the pasture and sort of maybe 200, 300 yards away and they, their dog started acting up. So they went to investigate and they found the mother of the calf that had been, they had just tagged, 
uh, dragging its feet and sort of acting very strangely, they came upon this calf that they had tagged 45 minutes previously. The calf was spread out on the pasture, and there are photographs on the internet of this. Uh, we did a full report, and we published it many times. Um, but the calf was like spread-eagled out on the, on the pasture. Um, all four legs, well, three legs were sort of spread out. One of the legs was, was about 10 feet away from the animal. But the interesting thing was that we flew up on Robert Bigelow's private jet. We were standing over that animal within seven hours of death. Um, so the animal was still fresh. I mean, you could see the animal's uh, pinkish flesh was not a drop of blood in the animal. Its entire body cavity was empty. All you could see was the sort of the spine running down from head to, head, head to stern of the animal and the, uh, the legs were, were spread out. It was almost like um, the uh, calf had been very carefully laid on the grass, um, not a drop of blood in the animal, underneath the animal. We actually went to the trouble of going to the local abattoir. We got four liters of blood just in case, you know, this a lot of blood had, had sort of seeped into the ground and disappeared. Um, it had not rained during that period, so there was really no way that the, the uh, blood had been washed off. But the thing was, not a single drop of blood on the animal. When we poured gr uh, blood on that grass, it was obvious. It was so obvious. The Gormans were especially sensitive because of the losses they'd already suffered. Out of a herd of 80 cattle, they lost 14 head prior to the arrival of NIDS. Some disappeared, others were sliced up. 12 more cows and calves were killed while NIDS was on the ranch. Their neighbors, the Garcias, lost several animals as well. Some of their cattle appeared to have been killed by being dropped onto the pasture from a great height. The cattle mutilation mystery has been reported in at least 15 states dating back to the 1960s. Thousands of animals have been sliced up with surgical precision, mostly under the cover of darkness. If humans are doing it, not a single suspect has ever been caught. For the Gormans, the livestock losses were devastating, both financially and psychologically. And then things got worse. On March 10th, 1997, Tom Gorman and his wife walked out of their home and into the pasture, planning to tag the ears of several calves that had been born in the preceding days. It was a bright, clear morning. Snow was on the ground. Fifty yards from their house, they found the first calf. Was they were with their, their dog. Uh, the, the two of them um, tagged and weighed this animal. They, they checked it at, I believe it was 84 pounds, or 87 pounds. And they left the animal there. With the, with the mother, everything seemed to be fine, although they did detect an odor in the air around this uh, area. They, they, they detected a strong musk smell. Um, they took note of it, and then they headed west, and they went about 300 yards west beyond, the, the dog run was, is not, was not there at the time, but about 300 yards beyond, um, towards where that incline is, um, and they were tagging a second animal. Only 30 to 40 minutes had passed. The Gormans had an unobstructed view of everything in the field, but didn't see or hear anything unusual until their dog focused its attention back toward the house and the first calf. 
The dog with them down here at this stage began to act really strangely. It started growling, the hair on the back of its neck went up, and it started facing back towards here, growling and snarling. And then it just took off west, away from this spot. It just took off. It was never seen again. The Gormans were curious and walked back across the field. First thing they saw was the mother of the animal was running back and forth, kind of in a, in a um, a sort of half circle from about this area to the fence line just running back and forth and it was limping I mean it was dragging its foot it was limping they met the animal um, and they noticed that it was just totally out of breath it was panting it was obviously in deep stress and it was dragging one leg and then they noticed the calf or what was left of it they spread eagled on the ground just about here with, uh, was, it was lying with all four limbs just spread on the ground. All of its internal body cavity was gone. Um, it was completely, pretty well, all of its uh, muscle was gone from, the, from the, the torso. The legs were still intact, but the, um, one of the ears was also gone. So they called NIDS. The rancher placed a call to the NIDS investigators who'd returned to Las Vegas for a rare weekend off. Within a few hours, a four-man team, including a veterinarian, was on the scene. Necropsy started, and the first thing that the veterinarian noticed during the necropsy was that the, the ear of the animal had been sliced off with a very sharp instrument, possibly a scalpel, and the ear had contained a very large plastic yellow um, tag, like a, a, um, an ear tag. They had just put on. That they had just put on, and it was gone. So. Um, the necropsy proceeded um, about 10 feet away from the animal. There was a femur. One of the femurs had been forcibly ripped out of a ball and socket joint, which is extremely difficult to do, I mean, in terms of strength. It, was, it looked initially, you know, superficially, like a massive predator had just lain waste to this animal, removed, you know, 60 pounds of meat in 45 minutes, which we don't know of any predator that could have done that. And how could a predator inflict such carnage without being seen or heard by the rancher, his wife, or his dog, who were a few hundred yards away in the same field on what was a quiet Sunday morning? No four-legged predator known to science could do it. The team gathered tissue and bone samples, which were sent to three independent pathology labs. The results arrived later, but confirmed what seemed obvious in the pasture that day. The calf had been carved up by someone wielding sharp, metallic instruments. A heavy machete-like object had slammed into the bones. A smaller, scalpel-like knife had sliced the hide and muscle. But closer inspection revealed that it was definitely sharp instruments used. There was no sign of blood was no sign of entrails around. It was perfectly clean. Um, not a drop of blood on the grass. We went even as far as doing an experiment by pouring blood on the grass to see how fast it would seep through. Videotaped the grass and showed, you know, even two days later you could still see the stain on the grass. So there was no blood whatsoever, not a single drop either underneath the animal, on the animal, or on the grass. It was just completely clean. A professional tracker was brought in. He scoured every inch of ground in and around the field, looking for tracks, human, animal, or vehicle. Nothing. Eventually, the investigators reached an unsettling conclusion. The bottom line is this animal must have been killed elsewhere because there was no blood. There was no blood on the scene, and then the animal must have been brought back, laid down carefully, almost, you know, 
really almost ritually on the spot where it had been tagged. The NIDS team investigated dozens of mutilation cases across the country. Many of the tissue samples were analyzed in NIDS' own lab in Las Vegas and then double-checked by independent labs they hired. The Utah calf was in a category all its own. It seemed akin to psychological warfare intended to shock and frighten the witnesses. The following night, there was another scare in the darkness of the first homestead. Shots were fired at something that had rattled the herd. Eventually, Colm Kelleher surmised that the perpetrators responsible for the calf were mechanical, like an assembly line in a meatpacking plant. A machine was involved with this carnage. Whatever happened to that calf um, was a, a, an extraordinarily skillful job. There's still people that'll say, oh, that's a predator. That was a mountain lion. That was a wolf. Uh, obviously, it was, you know, teeth marks and torn. It, it's not an, a predator. It's not an, you look for tracks. You had a professional tracker there. Right. No animal tracks, no person tracks, no right. vehicle tracks. Yes. I, I mean, we kind of did our due diligence. We hired a professional tracker and they tracked a two, you know, two mile radius of that carcass and they covered every inch of the ground. I mean, they did find tracks in the snow. There were very bizarre and mysterious tracks, um, but they, they were not sort of anywhere close to the animal. They were, these were a couple of hundred yards away from the and animal. And again, this is the broad daylight. The rancher and his wife are out there. If Correct. there's a mountain lion chewing up this calf. They would have heard something, well, yeah. It didn't look like chewing. So that's it. So George covers this case a lot in, in, the, in my movie, Hunt for the Skinwalker, you know, that you guys are featured in. So, but, but I want to really get into this a little bit is, so the volume of blood in these animals, so blood is missing. It's not right. like it's just, and that happened on multiple cases. Multiple cases. So 7% so of the animal's body weight is blood. So even with a 100-pound uh, calf, you know, 7% of that is 3.5 liters. You should have buckets of blood all around the grass, and there was not a drop of blood. Now, as George mentions, you know... And not just one case, many cases. Many, many cases, yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm just giving you the example because we were standing over this calf. We took a whole bunch of samples, um, blood samples and tissue samples, and sharp instruments had been used on the animal, uh, scalpels, a scissor-like instrument, but there was also teeth marks on the animal. It was very, very weird. Now, that was an anomaly in, in the case of, of normal cattle mutilations. Normally, what you've got is an ear is removed, an eye is removed. Um, sometimes there are wounds on the upper parts of the, the, the neck, but uh, a lot of the time the reproductive organs are, are removed. The anus is cored out. Uh, so it's a sort of a classic series of tongue never cut. Yeah, the tongue is is sometimes removed. Okay, so you've, and you've got the blood out, and then uh, people I know. I mean, I talked with Gabe Valdez, who was the yeah. kind of head guy in who you, obviously, but I I interviewed him right before he died at four hours, probably last. Inter I know it's the last interview you ever did. So here's the deal. It's just audio. I wasn't really in, into this stuff back then mm. to high degree. I just thought, hey, meet this guy in New Mexico. What year was that? Uh, I'll, I'll have to look back and I'll get you the yeah, exact Yeah, that's year. interesting. But I got the recording. But basically, 
some of the things that I just want to see if it's confirmed by your uh, interactions with this experience. So chemical analysis, was there anything that was found like chemical analysis when you look at wounds and that kind of thing? Yes, uh, that sort of started getting um, very mysterious when we started doing in-depth chemical analysis of the blood in some of these animals, we would find um, higher levels than there should be of, we found a compound called oxindole, for example, which is actually a sedative when used at high concentrations. But it's not a sedative that's used in the United States, it's used in Europe. So why would a sedative uh, be in an, an animal in northeastern Utah on the pasture that's, uh, you know, that's not used in the United States? We found high levels of succinate, which is a breakdown product of another anesthetic called succinylcholine. Um, we worked closely with a guy up in Montana called Captain Keith Wolverton, who actually had done a sterling job back in the 70s and 80s of investigating cattle mutilations around Great Falls, Montana. Well, Wolverton had found evidence of obvious puncture wounds in the animal's jugulars. Um, they also found like to drain the blood, possibly. Well, one of the one of the occasions they turned the animal over and they found this large hypodermic needle underneath the the cow, and this was a really weird thing. But it started getting us thinking that there's more to this than meets the eye. So so it you know we we investigated dozens and dozens and dozens of different cases, cattle mutilation cases everywhere from Washington State to California to Montana, Utah, um, Colorado, New Mexico. I mean, we covered the gamut and sort of, we were able to sort of distinguish two completely different MOs in the, in the cattle mutilation. Two MOs, so what are, what's the difference? Well, the first MO was, was, was the case, one of the examples of the first MO was the case I just talked about where the, the calf had been completely, um, you know, ripped apart and sort of laid on the pasture. We found other cases in Northern California where, you know, an eye had been very carefully removed and put on the grass uh, facing the animal, sort of a psychological sort of, uh, I mean, the animal was dead, obviously, and, and all of its entrails were gone. But there was this eye, the animal's eye from its, its right eye was left carefully with all of the fluid inside the eye, staring at the carcass. So this was not a typical uh, animal mutilation. We found a few of those, um, but, but by far the largest number we found was um, the obvious sort of removal of the tongue, removal of the eye. Uh, sometimes there was uh, parts of the brain gone. Um, removal of the reproductive organs. Were there like was there a hole where they took the brain out, kind of thing? No, or any kind of places where you had uh, organs that are taken out without incision marks. Well, we came across that too, which was uh, another very mysterious part. Uh, for example, in northeastern Utah, we came across a case where um, this cow had been alive the previous day. We we did a necropsy the following day. And, um, you know, the, the pericardial sac, which surrounds the heart, uh, was completely intact. But the heart was shredded as if sort of this, you know, was sliced and diced into a sort of a pulp. Um, but that the pericardium, which you would normally have to get into 
in order to slice and dice the heart was perfectly intact. Was there any kind of incision outside the cow that would have allowed them to get in there that you noticed? Um, there was an incision around the eye, but, but a direct route from the eye to, to the heart was, I mean, it was very, very difficult. The second thing was that we did, uh, we did pregnancy uh, analysis on the cow. The cow had been pregnant and its womb was empty. You know, it had been, been obviously pregnant the night very recently. So no, no evidence of a fetus whatsoever. We also came across different chemicals in, in, in that particular body that shouldn't have been there. I, I, gotta, I gotta back up here for a second. So, I mean, so you personally studied this case where the pericardium sac is intact, yes. only hole in the eye, and there was a shredding of the heart. Yes. And that's not like the heart attack explodes the heart into shreds. This is different from your personal observation. Yeah. And there's other cases where fetuses are removed and there's no entry points that are obvious. Right. Um, Bones? Okay. Bones? Bones have removed been... without incisions? Um, no, we never saw that actually. I mean, it just takes one strange, I mean, so now, but hold on, you're talking about two MOs and I keep thinking about this thing you keep telling me called bisymmetrical mimicry. If, if we're talking about these mutilations are being done by like Satanist people that come and work, okay, well, no one's ever been caught. Okay, next one, someone's gonna say it's a secret government program. Right. And you did find a syringe and some sedatives from another country, but does this relate to your idea of bisymmetrical mimicry with yes, partly, MOs? partly, yeah, it does. Now, another another example of medical equipment was uh, Sheriff Tex Graves, uh, Logan County, Colorado, which was a really big epicenter of cattle mutilations in the 1970s and 1980s. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of cases in northeastern Colorado, which is a big beef part of, you know, center of the country. In fact, the governor, uh, governor actually went up um, Governor of Colorado went up in the 1970s to spec out what was going on because it was so prevalent and he called it an outrage that so many cattle were going down and nobody seemed to know why and he, he, he said it was one of the biggest outrages that he'd ever seen. But anyway, Sir, Sheriff Tex Graves uh, had been investigating a lot of these uh, mutilations and he turned an animal over and found uh, medical equipment underneath the animal that was capable of exsanguinating the animal, which is removing all the blood from the animal. So, you know, that case was not very well reported because it was overlaid on literally hundreds of other mutilations where there was no medical equipment found and no tracks and mysterious lights in the sky. So the, the sort of the general meme at the time was that, you know, there was mysterious lights in the sky that seemed to trigger these cattle mutilations. Therefore, there may have been, quote unquote, UFOs involved with, with the, you know, the deaths. Um, I, we, we investigated a lot of these cases and we found because of these medical associations, we postulated that some kind of sampling exercise might be going on at the same time as the, uh, the quote-unquote genuine mutilation. So that that sort of brings brings this whole bidirectional mimicry hypothesis. What does out. that mean? I don't know what the word means. So so mimicry. Here we have a phenomenon that began, we think, in the 1950s. It probably began earlier, but you know, a lot of the cases started emerging in the late 1950s and and 1960s of cattle mutilations, all the way through the western part of the United States and also up in Canada. 
um, and actually in other countries too. So here we have a phenomenon that's quote-unquote genuine. But at the same time, uh, we're finding these occasional cases where it's pretty obvious that somebody is using sedatives, is using hypodermic needles, and is using medical equipment to exsanguinate animals. So uh, we postulated that there were two things going on simultaneously that were causing a lot of confusion. You've got number one, a quote-unquote genuine phenomenon, and number two, you've got this medical a surveillance project that is being carried out knowing that you know most veterinarians will not touch a mutilated animal because the quote-unquote aliens are associated with uh, mutilated animals so these these small covert surveillance programs um, that are being uh, carried out um, are being carried out knowing uh, that the all overall umbrella of cattle mutilations is protecting the perpetrators from being caught. So, I mean, that's the bi-directional mimicry. You've got, you've got the quote-unquote real phenomenon. You've got a, a small program that's hiding underneath the phenomenon. And then you've got the phenomenon that's actually mimicking, you know, the, uh, the, the, the uh, government surveillance program. So you've got this, you can, you can create these Z plots, but the problem is that you're looking at cattle mutilations through the lens of two layers of deception. You know, so you've got the layer of deception from the, uh, from the phenomenon, and you've also got the layer of deception from the, um, the government program that is using cattle mutilations as a cover for a surveillance uh, effort. So you've got two layers of deception. It's very, very difficult for an outsider coming into this to penetrate those two layers of deception. You can draw exactly the same plot for the UFO phenomenon. Um, you know, the UFO phenomenon starts off as being genuine. Then you, I mean, we interviewed Colonel Barry Hennessy, who was the head of the infamous AFOSI PJ. Um, we interviewed him as part of the OSOP program. This, I mean, he blatantly told us, um, he didn't tell us on camera, but he told us that they had used the UFO phenomenon as a cover for their advanced projects. And this guy was part of the Air Force AFOSI. So, um, so we have the same thing. We've got a, we've got a quote unquote genuine phenomenon. You, we've got a, a series of advanced technology projects, special access program uh, going on using the UFO as a, as a cover. And then you've got this sort of reverse engineering setup that's going on that are creating these, um, you know, special access programs that are, are happening. And then you've got the phenomenon that is mimicking these special access programs. You know, you've got helicopters with impossible levels of, of acceleration. You've got, you know, craft flying around the place um, that look like triangular craft that, that should be part of the Air Force arsenal, but they're probably the phenomenon. So you've got this two layers of deception with the UFO phenomenon. So the question is, which we've been asking for decades, are they ours or theirs? You, you uh, eventually wrote a book about uh, your ideas, Brain Trust, it was right. called, where you're looking at the, the two levels. So there is a legitimate mystery, something carving up cattle, horses, sheep, Dogs, cats, deer, other wild animals. Elk, it's not yeah. just it's not just cows. Right. That something has been doing this, taking particular parts, 
uh, I'd be interested in why those parts, what what they, whoever they are, could learn from it. And then uh, the secondary monitoring, either government or industry, that is tracking something through the food chain. What were they looking for? What what could be learned based on the parts that are being taken from these various animals? Well, <clears throat> we put out the hypothesis at NIDS back in 2003. We were looking for what could possibly be um, of such interest that, I mean, normally if you want to track something, you go to slaughterhouses and you, and you gather samples. I mean, there's no, there's nothing mysterious about that. But if you want to track spread of something through herds in the wild, um, the way you do it is illegal. I mean, you basically start sampling animals. If, if it's wildlife, it's not illegal. But if, if these are cattle that are owned by ranchers, it is illegal. So you do it under, under covert yeah, op- like operations. Why wouldn't the government just have their own staple of, of cows that they would Yeah, why sample? would you go why? steal somebody's cow instead? Because you're yeah. tracking something that's, that's moving through the food chain in the in the west of the oh, United to, to States, us, to our yeah. food chain. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're eating cows, right? Right, but we're not eating the government's cows, so it's no, like that's no. the, that's why they're doing. Well, well, I mean, the, the 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 real kicker here is that there's a long history of. Um, I mean, NIDS came up with the hypothesis that one of the possible infectious organisms that could be traveling surreptitiously through the herds was what, what is called a prion, which is an infectious protein. Indestructible. It, indestructible, and it, it actually um, has destroyed a lot of the elk population, a lot of the deer population in the western part of the United States and Canada. Um, but, you know, it, it also infects cows, it infects deers and elk. So we, we looked at the hypothesis that the infectious organism, which is a very devastating disease, a brain disease called Christian Jakob syndrome, where your a human's brain turns to Swiss cheese. In cows, it's called mad cow disease, and it erupted in the United Kingdom um, in the 1990s. And you know, people who were who were eating um, infected meat came down. Young people came down with these devastating brain diseases where the brains became Swiss cheese, and they, you know, incurable, obviously. So the hypothesis that we were looking at is that this is so sort of toxic and very, very, um, I guess, inflammatory, um, is that a covert program was, was launched in the 60s and 70s to see how far uh, these prions might have got uh, from wildlife into the food chain. When you because, say covert, you mean a, a government decided? Yeah. To? Uh, well, a, probably a contractor. A contractor I mean, be, on behalf of a government. Yes. Um, did a covert program to track prions through the food chain. That that was the hypothesis that we we were looking at because got it. Um, there is a uh, you know it was a very bizarre series of um, cause and effects that led to that hypothesis. But ba- to cut a long story short. An NIH scientist out in Papua New Guinea uh, was investigating this bizarre brain disease that people in Papua New Guinea were coming down with. Cannibals. Yeah, they were cannibals. They were eating their dead as a sign of respect. But the problem with eating their dead was they were eating these people's brains and they would come down with this uncontrollable shaking and they would die soon, you know, within a year or two of, of symptoms starting. So this guy, his name was Carlton Gajuszek. Um, 
he got the bright idea of, you know, he was kind of like a James Bond type. He would be out in the wilds and these people would be dying all over the place um, of this uncontrollable disease. So he would open their skulls, take their brains out, which were infected with this thing, and he would ship them back to the National Institutes of Health in the United States. They all ended up in this place called Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is a center of biological warfare research in the United States. So they started in the 1960s. They really had no idea what, what this causative agent was doing or what it was. They thought it might be a slow virus. So they started injecting this, these uh, brain slurries into every animal they could get their hands on, everything like from chimpanzees. They, they set up this um, sort of zoo-like like, uh, area in Maryland. There was actually a wildlife reserve in Maryland. And they started injecting deer, they started injecting chimpanzees, mice, rats, anything they could lay, lay their hands on to see if these animals would get sick, and a lot of them did. But the problem with that is that the, uh, the wildlife reserve was so poorly uh, secure that a lot of these animals escaped. And so the origin of this hypothesis is that this prion, which is a very slow way of dying, was moving slowly through the food chain. It, and there was a, a major outbreak of this prion disease in northeastern Colorado in the 60s. And so the cattle mutilation phenomenon erupted in northeastern Colorado around the same time, roughly temporarily. And so, you know, you've got all these sort of lights in the sky that were, were causing these animals or associated with these animals dying. And so the hypothesis we put out was that they were actually monitoring the spread of these prions as it spread through the cattle herds in northeastern Colorado. And then they found that they were spreading a lot quicker um, through the United States. so And it's scary as hell. Column's book, Brain Trust, tracks the spread of this. It really is through the food chain. You know, those right. animals get out, a deer is infected, it gets hit, and, and somebody uh, grinds it up and feeds it to other animals. These prions are indestructible, so now those animals have it. So you've had cows eating cows, and they get it, and then they, they get ground up, and people eat them, and it goes into humans. There's been an explosion, we don't call it mad cow anymore, but other kinds of brain diseases, brain wasting diseases that nobody wants to talk about, that nobody wants to admit might be related to this because they don't want to uh, uh, alienate the beef industry or the pig industry. Uh, they want people to keep on eating this stuff. Yeah. So so I remember this one time in Pioneer Town, you sat me down at a table and I was, we were, I was filming this adventure to go, there's a fresh, you know, cattle, but I... I you laid it out for me at that table. You're like, no, this is happening. It's much more, no matter what it is, you know, from lights in the sky to a government program to people running around, no one's ever been caught. And you sat me at that table and you laid it out for me. I was astonished with the documentation that you were able to show me from the FBI on. My question for you is with the, the book Brain Trust, when did you, did you publish this after these investigations with the NID stuff? Yeah. Okay, so you had direct first hand, but the book is not all about that part of the mystery. It's about the prions and the tracking right. of this illness. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the man. majority of the book is about the, the tracking of the illness, the origin in Papua New Guinea and the way it, it tracked into the United States. And then um, it 
it tracked through different animals and wildlife through the United States. One of the chapters does talk about cattle mutilations and it does correlate the, uh, you know, the, the cattle mutilations with the uh, surveillance program that was going I've on. I've seen it said uh, in these broad statements, Colm Keller has explained the whole thing. They're all humans. It's monitoring the, something in the food chain. It's right. all explainable. It's not all explainable, though. No. There is a legitimate mystery. Yeah. We still don't know who they are and why they're taking these particular parts. Absolutely. I, 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 I think we, we did enough research with NIDS in the 1990s, especially with the, the cattle mutilation phenomenon, to show there were two completely separate patterns of cattle mutilations. And one of them was not explicable through a surveillance program. It was way too weird, way too bizarre um, for a sampling exercise or a surveillance program. So we, we ended up that there were two classes of, of cattle mutilations, but that message really never got, you know, got through that there were two classes of mutilations. Just like um, in the UFO, with the UFO phenomenon, you know, black triangles, are they ours, are they theirs? Or is, is, it a special, is it a special access program or is it UFOs? I mean, you've got these, these massive black triangles and NIDS did a lot of research on, on the black triangle phenomenon. We interviewed hundreds of witnesses around the United States and, you know, we came up with the same kind of thing. There were, it seemed like there were sort of impossibly large triangular craft that were floating over neighborhoods at treetop level that were so ridiculously brightly lit. If this was a special access program, you know, it was a severely uh, lacking in air safety protocols. I mean, if, if, if this was an experimental aircraft flying over neighborhoods at treetop level, you know, uh, sort of gliding over neighborhoods, the, 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 um, the Air Force would, uh, would fire these people, these pilots. I mean, it, there was, it made no sense. But at the same time, we know that, you know, triangular craft are being flown. I mean, the B-1 and the B-21 are, are sort of classic examples of what sort of a triangular craft would look like. But you've got these two uh, different um, origins of these triangular craft and you know it comes up with the same thing you're looking at this black triangle phenomenon through two layers of deception and it's very very difficult uh, NIDS is such an amazing organization so Bigelow starts creating it in 1995 and by that time I'd been friends with him for about six years Robert Bigelow and he's a very ambitious. He'd been giving out a lot of money to, to researchers, Stan Friedman, Bud Hopkins, Linda Howe, all to go after their own special uh, a slice of the pie. And, uh, and it also offered or, uh, money to these UFO organizations, none of whom could get along. So he said, the hell with it, I'll create my own. So he starts putting NIDS together in 95. 1996, the very first Science Advisory Board meeting is held at Park House in Las Vegas. And they asked me to come and speak. And I was overwhelmed. I mean, I, I thought it was really cool, but overwhelmed looking around that room. There's Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. There's Jacques Vallée, uh, maybe the greatest UFO writer thinker ever. There, there's Hal Putoff, there's Kit Green, only names I've sort of heard about in whispers uh, uh, in the UFO world. And then a, a lot of other academics who are equally impressive. Harrison Schmidt, who was a U.S. Senator at the time. I, I do a presentation on the Russia UFO files 
And uh, it didn't really go anywhere. I mean, a couple of them were interested. Harrison Schmidt was kind of a jerk about that whole thing. He, was, he wasn't buying it. It's all anecdotal. And it was the Russian Ministry of Defense files. But I was in. So, and, and after that meeting, that's when I told Harry Reid about it, about this organization called NIDS. A couple of months later is when Robert Bigelow hears about this ranch in Utah and buys it. And around the same time, he hires this the young Irish guy named Colin Kelleher, who I was allowed to interact with. I get over there. I don't know what he thought. Why do I have to talk to this reporter? But yeah. <laughs> and he's telling me all this cattle mutilation stuff. They start doing the, the uh, Black Triangle investigation. They're working on all kinds of cool things, including Skinwalker Ranch. And it's wonderful to be on the inside and to be able to hear this. And it was also torturous to be there as a reporter and not be able to tell anybody any of it. We just couldn't be, just utter a word. Yeah, I did. Uh, we ended up doing some stories. I interviewed young Colum. I think we talked about cattle mutilation stuff in one right. of them. And then later did a story on black triangles. Yeah. And so we did, I was allowed to, to, to pierce the veil a little bit, but couldn't say anything about the ranch at all. I just want to, again, I, I keep feeling like I have to back up. So you have direct knowledge that our government was using the UFO phenomenon as cover in a way, like what, what, like faking UFO encounters? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Barry, Colonel Barry Hennessy was legendary in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He ran a, a, a subset of that called, uh, an organization called PJ. This was the sort of the really heavy-duty counterintelligence uh, uh, organization. And so uh, we interviewed him in 2009. Like counterintelligence about the UFO topic or a lot of things? Of, of, of the Air Force, all of the Air okay, Force all ops. Of the, okay. Yeah. So, so a subset of that you know, came up during our interview. We were, the only reason we interviewed uh, Colonel Hennessy was because he was a legend um, in this field. And we had heard rumors that the Air Force had utilized the UFO phenomenon to cover, you know, various uh, special access programs. You know, a good example was an early version of the F-117 had crashed uh, near Dulce, New Mexico um, in the 80s. And the, so there was an, a UFO lore grow, grew up around uh, that part of New Mexico. And it was perpetrated by agents of AFOSI. So it was very convenient for the Air Force to have a lot of people uh, talk about, you know, alien UFOs crashing in, in, uh, in northern New Mexico, when actually an early prototype of the F-117 had crashed in northern New Mexico. So that was an example of a sort of a marriage of convenience. And other, other examples that Colonel Hennessy gave us was there was a very famous set of sightings in, in what was called the Northern Tier missile uh, uh, bases that spanned uh, between Canada and the United States. It was Loring Air Force Base in Maine and Wordsmith Air Force Base, uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base, uh, Minot Air Force Base, right across the, the, the Northern Tier. A lot of those bases during the 1970s had incursions from very weird sort of UFO type activity. But Colonel Hennessy told us some of those were ours. You know, some of those were direct penetration attempts to see, to assess and evaluate the security uh, level of, of these Air Force bases. But he flat out said some of them were not ours. Some of them were 
theirs. So, so, so it was this discrepancy between some are ours and some are theirs, but the Northern Tier sightings are usually associated with only UFO activity. But we know from what Colonel Hennessy told us that it was both. Right. And so, you know, I've talked to certain um, pilots. That, you know, have you ever seen a UFO? And there were military pilots that right. have flown special craft, you know, and they're like, no, but I've been one. You know, it's like the misidentification. But I, I think what's hard for people yeah. to unravel, because it was hard for me to really get this, which is that you've got this real phenomenon of unknown, which is definitively, we'll just say unknown at this time, or not ours, or not a nation that we know of on planet Earth that we're aware of. Just call them them. Them. There's some, there's some, but that there's also this misidentification issue when it right. comes to our military technology. But there is a process for that. And eventually, the people investigating it, they're able to see that was ours. You know, don't waste resources on that. And there's a whole protocol and process. And a lot of people that want to dismiss this topic, they're, they're always saying, well, this is a foreign tech or this is a black U.S. project. I've gone through it ad nauseum, like how that doesn't apply, how at the highest levels, when people knock on doors, they get to... They're wasting resources if it were. These are not ours. And that's so hard for people who don't want to look at the facts to understand. But you're telling us these different layers, they all exist simultaneously, which right. is even harder to grasp as a, as a big topic. Now, I do want to kind of get into this one idea that one of the reasons why I'm stoked you're talking with us like openly here like this, man, I've heard you guys talk. I know what's going on to a high degree is that you ran, like you ran the largest acknowledged UFO program in the history of our military that's acknowledged, and, and that was called OSAP, hired through the DIA contract, but you were the principal who ran the day-to-day, -day, the investigations. Is that correct? You oversaw it all? More to come with Dr. Colin Kelleher in the near future. Follow and listen to Weaponize, the presentation of Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, Dark Horse Entertainment, and Cadence 13 Studios. Available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.